All right. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. But I will say that this morning we'll be going through some New Testament passages. So get those phones ready or whatever you're using, your fingers ready to go through the pages. Foundations of discipleship, the beginnings of discipleship in the church. We've been in Acts chapter 2 for a while. We were looking at, spent some time in 2 Samuel 7, because that's where Peter goes. And the hard part about this passage is it's a long one, first of all, but also requires just a whole ton of Old Testament background. And so trying to present the meaning of the text without that background has been a challenge. So if some of you have said, gosh, this is a long slog, <clears throat> if you had read the Old Testament all your life and lived on it, <clears throat> you would have understood Peter immediately, but we have to sort of open those things up. So we were in 2 Samuel 7. We're now embarking on Psalm 110. It's the last major passage that Peter appeals to. Um, and <clears throat> in talking about this, Peter, first of all, makes a declaration about Psalm 110, or really about Jesus and his fulfillment of Psalm 110. Then he quotes Psalm 110 itself. So, last week we started looking at that declaration, this Jesus God raised up, Acts chapter 2, 32 through 33. It's simply a bold declaration of historic fact. It's a bold declaration of what God has done in Christ. God has accomplished in Christ a decisive victory. No force but God could accomplish this. No force of darkness can undo it. And always remember that as you... Consider your Christian life, and we spend most of the Christian life just in the, in the blasé world. That's what we do. I'd love, to, uh, I'd love for it to be true about all the books on revivalism and all those other things. We're just on a mountaintop and floating with God. I've been in, I think, three revivals now, and when you're in a revival, that's what you're doing. You're just floating. <clears throat> and you can have a personal revival in your life where... God does some things, and just for weeks, months, even years, you can just sort of be up here. But the normal Christian life is lived in the mundane. And just so remember that, but it doesn't negate the reality of the power of God. Our experience is not the measure. This Jesus, God raised up. Satan can't undo that. God has established it forever. And then Peter says, to which we are all witnesses. He appeals to eyewitness testimony. And throughout uh, Acts, uh, Peter identifies himself and others as witnesses. This is an important item. It's important in the first century. It's important in this century. Your eyewitness testimony um, <clears throat> is everything. Your personal testimony is everything. Um, don't discount it. Don't let Satan suppress it. Don't let Satan go, oh, that person doesn't want to hear it. You never know. Again, I'm going to just remind you all the time. When I was 17, if someone had come up and talked to me about Jesus, I was a druggie and other things, if someone had come up and talked to me about Jesus, I would have absolutely listened. Uh, but nobody, I guess nobody thought I would. So anyway, we're all witnesses. We're witnesses of Christ. We saw that if you look at all the witnesses from the, from the women at the tomb to a road to Emmaus to Jesus appearing in Jerusalem, Jesus at Galilee, disciples watching his ascension, the group of 500 plus that Paul mentions, Paul himself, you have 544 plus people 
saw Jesus raised from the dead. He appeared personally. They're all witnesses, and many of those witnesses were persecuted. We read about that in Acts 3 through 9 and other places. Some of those witnesses had died or were martyred. Again, you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15 and Acts 26, other places. But not one witness to the resurrection of Christ, not one, ever retracted their claim. Every last one of them maintained their claim that Jesus had risen from the dead and they saw it to the end of their days. You're a witness of Christ. You're a witness of what God has done in you. So do not discount that. That is what the world has. Uh, You think you need apologetics and you think, oh, you know, there's all this philosophy. Who cares about all that stuff? Philosophy is, again, as one fellow said, if men lead you into truth, then men can lead you out again. Uh, And uh, we're here to just bear witness to what we know of God and of Christ. Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony, but that's for another time. This morning, we want to continue in this passage, Acts 2, 32 through 33, the, the last part of it where Peter makes his concluding arguments. This Jesus God raised up, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So let's ask the Lord to be with us this morning as we look at some of the content of this sort of final, final arguments of Peter as he's wrapping up his message. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne and we are so glad it's a throne of grace. It's also a throne of glory and majesty and honor. And Lord, we want to never cease worshiping you night and day. Lord, you know that uh, our lives can become, uh, as it were, just sort of mundane and dull and disconnected and we can get off in the weeds, but Lord, your glory never changes. And the reality that you have saved us never changes. And uh, so, Lord, throughout our lives, even if all we can do is just muster up just an intellectual recognition of you, Lord, we just want to worship your name, praise your name. You're the God who made heaven and earth that is celebrated throughout this book. And all we have to do, if there's any doubts about you, all we got to do is look around and just go, men didn't create this. And uh, this isn't a bunch of bag of molecules floating around in the universe that kind of bumped around and formed this. Uh, This is shaped and fashioned by your hands. And so we praise you this morning. And Lord, as we look at this passage where you've raised up your son, the son of your love, the one in whom you have given Lord, everything over to, to to manage redemption, to manage the history of redemption, to fulfill it, to bring every saint in every age to the final conclusion in their life where we are going to be glorified together with you one day. Lord, you've given all of that into the hand of Jesus. And Lord, we're looking at some passage that's directly stated. And Lord, we can read your word and I can do some explaining here and there. But in the end, um, Lord, it takes your Holy Spirit. Lord, we just pray you would glorify yourself in our hearts. If there's some here this morning that are just sad or downcast or empty, Lord, fill their souls. Fill them with you. If there's some that are they're just too worried about the world or worried about their circumstances or worried about this or that relationship, Lord, let them just take a pause. 
and just sit before your throne. Lord, we think of it in, in, in Exodus where it says that the, the leaders sat before God, um, the 70, and, and saw God. And we're not sure what that means. Lord, that's what we want to do this morning. All of us here. We're bought with the blood of your Son. You are our Father. And Lord, we just long to see your glory, just to encourage us to renew our souls so that we can live our life out in all the things you want us to do and be in the midst of a world that's just getting more and more crazy every day. And so, Lord, glorify your Son. Make these passages sing. Most of the passages we've all read, but just remind us again, Lord, what they mean, what their theme is, and how glorious Jesus is. And we ask in his name. Amen. All right, well, as Peter starts this uh, sort of final uh, lap of his message, he said God has raised up Jesus. He said that there are witnesses to it, a whole pile of them are. And therefore, well, therefore something's true. Therefore something's meaningful. Peter's finally getting to his conclusion, and he's saying, therefore. He's been moving to this place in his message from the beginning. This is where he wanted to get to. What you're going to find is the, the message starts with, you know, these are not drunken as, as you suppose, and it ends with, well, he's poured forth this which you now see in here. So Peter's about to declare two conditions, two conditions that have been fulfilled in Jesus and explain everything that's happening. If we understand the present condition of Christ, or these two conditions, then we can properly interpret this event of the Holy Spirit being poured out. One of the things in Christendom, and all those, it's, it's all, I don't know, it's, it's just interesting. There's a whole world claims to be Christian, and well, how, how many of them fit, we'll find out in the day of judgment, but um, there's just a lot of ideas floating around. And I was in the Pentecostal movement, and fortunately or unfortunately, the Pentecostal movement has a couple good things to add, but one of the hallmarks is, is they just don't spend a lot of time in their Bibles. That's generally the case. Not, every, not everywhere, but that's generally the case. So even in the thing they glory in, that we have the Holy Spirit, um, I don't know, it just seems like there's just so much missing. It's just so so confused. And it's because they don't interpret the experience of the Holy Spirit by the Word of God. They think that the Holy Spirit is his own interpreter and I can, just by my feelings that I get from the Spirit, I can interpret things. And that's not true. The Holy Spirit's being poured out on the day of Pentecost and Peter says, therefore, he's poured forth this which you now see and hear. Therefore, and here are two core things that you have to know to appreciate and understand this gift of the Spirit. What you're now seeing and hearing, he's talking to the crowd, what you all are now seeing and hearing is absolutely undeniable. Everybody's a witness. There's hundreds, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many people can hear Peter. I don't know where he was exactly situated. But there's a lot of people there. Everybody was seeing what was going on. It was an undeniable experience, although there were different interpretations, you see. And Peter is saying you have to understand that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the result of the promise of Joel 2, 28 through 32 that is being fulfilled in Jesus 
and that is realizing the Davidic covenant. That's what he's been saying. So he makes a summary. Jesus has fulfilled two conditions that bring the Holy Spirit into people's lives in a big way, in a new covenant way, uh, in a regeneration way. First condition is that Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. You have to appreciate that. It's where the Davidic covenant has been going toward, this final summary. He's exalted at the right hand of God. Place of honor, a place of responsibility, but Jesus is exalted, and therefore the Holy Spirit is poured out. Secondly, Jesus is in charge of distributing the Holy Spirit, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. See, it's interesting that people say they can be spiritual, but Jesus is just either on the shelf with other ideas about God or not even on the shelf at all. Like, you don't get the Spirit of God unless you get it from Jesus. That's what this passage says. And see, these are the things we need to tell people in this day. We need to tell Islamists that, okay, you, you say that you, you know, have some kind of relationship with God. They usually don't even talk in those terms, but... Because of the Christian culture, they've sort of taken on our terminology. It's interesting that in a lot of countries in the world, India is a big one, they took on Christian concepts and Christian ideas. So there's this Christian idea of Buddhism, Christian idea of Hinduism, and, and they take on these terms. Uh, Islam, at least in America, has done the same thing. I even had one guy try to witness to me. I probably told him. I actually had two guys, one on an airplane and one taxi cab driver. I'm sitting there just going... This stuff isn't in the Quran, and yet here you are taking the words of Christianity and saying that they're Islamic, and they're not. You only get the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of God. You will not get the Holy Spirit of God. You will not be a spiritual person without coming to Jesus. Not possible. So remember that. So these two facts, these two conditions, these two realities underlie the events of the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus is at the right hand of God, and the Father has given him the Spirit to pour out. Handed it over to Jesus. These are the rationale for the events of Pentecost. These are the reasons and dynamics for the events of Pentecost. Pentecost is awesome. To get the Holy Spirit is often Awesome. You know, I've had a few spiritual gifts in my life. Some of them come and gone. Some of them have stuck. But to have a gift of the Holy Spirit, presence of the Holy Spirit, that's awesome, right? We all, in one sense, we can't wait to get to heaven. We can't wait to, for the new heavens and new earth where we will be seeing the glory of God and have bodies that won't die on account of it. But it's awesome. But it comes from these two things. So Paul, or rather Peter, he says, therefore, having been exalted. This is kind of a new statement. It's sort of the culmination of what he's been saying, but he's now saying not only is Jesus risen from the dead, but now we've moved to this grand reality where he is exalted. The exaltation of Christ. And this exaltation of Christ has a specific specific definition. There's specificity to this. He's not just exalted. Okay, he's been lifted high. He's been lifted high in a biblical definition, a definition that's rooted in the Old Testament. 
Again, just remind you, when you're talking to people, that Old Testament is where you can go. If, you try to get the, if you've got the hook a little bit in, but there's still people who have been listening to stuff in the world and they still have questions in their mind, have some passages that you can pull right out of your back pocket in that Old Testament and say, hey, you know, this is the Holy Spirit here in Isaiah being poured out. Here's the Holy Spirit in Ezekiel. Here's this promise of the Holy Spirit in Joel. You can have the Holy Spirit. God himself will come and dwell in you. There's specificity, there's type, there's shadow, there's statement, there's prophecy, there's promise. He's at the right hand of God. Again, it's a place of dignity and honor, and it's a direct reference, of course, to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 2, The Lord says unto my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. Then in verse 5, it says, The Lord at your right hand, he's going to shatter kings in the day of his wrath. It's going to be a place of power and victory. Victory because there's an evil, wicked world that wants to squash and suppress the gospel. You see, it's not the power of personality or the power of your dynamic personality, which you may or may not have. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of Jesus Christ. It's the power of a simple message. That's the power of the gospel. That's what you should always trust in. If you can't convince someone to become a Christian by giving a simple gospel, then you're probably not going to get very far if you get complicated or they're worrying about philosophy. Just say, hey, don't worry about philosophy. Philosophers can't raise you from the dead. Only Jesus can. Jesus is at the right hand of God and he has power and he'll shatter kings or Psalm 2. He'll break them with a rod of iron. What does he need that rod of iron for? Go try to bring the gospel to uh, Islamic country. We have some folks who are doing that. (laughs) They need that rod of iron every day. They need Jesus to be in charge. They need Jesus to have the power to change things when there is this government and a culture that is absolutely aligned against the gospel. You want to bring the gospel into, you know, some other countries, China, Russia, that's when Jesus, that rod of iron, you pray and Jesus does things. He's at the right hand of God. And right hand is a place of primary authority. We talk about your right hand man. This so-and-so is my right hand man. What do we mean by that? Well, of all the people in my life, this is the person who's most significant to me. This is the person who's most helpful to me. Here's the person I can always rely on. Right-hand man. Well, Jesus is God's right-hand man. He's at the right hand of God. He's in a place of primary authority, of dignity, of honor, of strength, of skill, of action, of dependence. Jesus ministers the kingdom of God on the behalf of God. It's also a location. You can't forget that the right hand of God is a location. We're going to see in a bit there's actually a person in the New Testament who looked up and saw Jesus at the right hand of God. Remember who that is? If God opens the heaven and wants to give you a sight and let you pierce through the heavens let you pierce through 41 billion light years past that cosmic horizon into the true heavens of God, God can do that. 
he will. Jesus is in a location called the right hand of God. It's a location that's in the heavens. Now the passage says, therefore, having been exalted. To exalt means to lift up and to raise high. That's its basic meaning. You could say, I'm going to you know, exalt myself onto this platform. I'm going to get lazed up. I'm going to lift up. Figuratively, to be exalted means to be regarded, to be honored, to be put in a position of regard and honor, to be raised up figuratively. And then it can be used negatively. It's like, that guy's really exalted himself when he shouldn't have. Okay, so it's to falsely raise oneself up or put oneself forward as important. Having been exalted. And exalted in the Greek is uh, what you would call a tense that's very clear that it's an accomplished reality. He has been exalted, and it was accomplished by a one-time action or event. And that event could be a transition. The event could be a few things that happened, but they're regarded as a single thing. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus ascended. We believe those things, right? We'll celebrate on a, on a Friday. We'll celebrate Jesus dying. Remember it. We'll wait through a Saturday, and then on Sunday morning, we'll celebrate him rising. And if you're a good Anglican, by the way, I've been sort of tracking some of the Anglicans um, because they've been in a battle, and there's some really conservative Anglicans that are, are dealing with a lot of things. So a fellow named Calvin, I forget his last name now. But there's this other fellow, Emerson. He has a little church somewhere, a little Anglican church. And I was watching a little bit of his church service this morning while I was putting a message together. Anglican church, there he is. He has so many good things to say. When I saw him, uh, I was kept, he, he used to do his YouTube and his library would be behind him. It's like, those are all the books I read. And then you see him in the service and he's got all these vestments and everything. But uh, he's a good guy and has a lot of good things to say. Um, I just... Couldn't wear one of his robes. Um, anyway, they have an ascension, right? They have an ascension Sunday, I assume. So Jesus died, Jesus rose, and 50 days later, he ascended. But that's not the end of the story. Because the scriptures say he was exalted. That's the final step. He goes as low as you can go on a cross as a crummy criminal, an awful criminal, a despised criminal. You can't get any lower. Yep, well, you can. You can get into a grave. And then he starts stepping out, steps out into resurrection, steps out into ascension. And that final step is exaltation. The exaltation of Christ, the final stage in the glorification of Jesus having been exalted. That's a gospel fact, and it's a great gospel fact. Jesus is not just some religious figure. He is exalted to the right hand of God, the right hand of power. And that's the Jesus you have to present. See, most of the world assumes that religion is like joining the rotary. You just, you know, pick some thing, or you pick some ideas about God, and that's what you serve, because most of what's out there is that. <clears throat> 
So they just assume that when you say that you're a Christian, well, they have an idea about Christianity. It's an idea you don't espouse, but you've got to remember when you're talking to them how they're thinking, how they're hearing your terminology. Because they're interpreting your words the way they understand them, not necessarily the way you understand them. And so you need to be clear that Jesus died, rose, ascended, and has been exalted. He's not someone to toy with. He's certainly not someone to use his name in vain all day long. He's certainly someone not to make jokes about. Because his death was no joking matter. Sin is no joking matter. He's exalted. You know, a lot of people today, because the queen just died and she was someone I had a lot of respect for. I watched the, I don't know if any of you watched Crown, the series, The Crown. It was pretty good. I liked the first two seasons best. But <clears throat> as kings and queens go, she was a good one. There's even on The Crown, there's a few episodes where Billy Graham, she had Billy Graham come in and talk. And they were, I was surprised that they gave a good representation. And Prince Philip even had a time in his life when he encountered, what I, I would say, the gospel. And it was really, they did a good presentation. I don't know if that's what really happened, but the presentation I liked anyway. So she was a good queen. And so I've you know, paid attention to some of that because the whole world is thinking about it. Remember, if you're going to be talking about the gospel, you're going to be talking to people in the world. So it might be good to be a little bit knowledgeable about the world in which they live <laughs> And you live also, so that you can have a conversation and have a dialogue. And they don't think that you're from Little House on the Prairie 50 years ago. Um, we live in the present world. We, we minister in the present world. We witness in the present world. But Jesus has been exalted. I mean, you look at all this arena of kings and queens, there's all these people that they want to go and meet the king or meet the queen. And I bet you if they are in the king's and queen's presence, they wouldn't joke about, oh, I heard this queen joke the other day. What do you think? Think anybody would do that? They have a regard and a respect for a person, at least the last queen, who earned respect by her demeanor, by her sober-mindedness, by her really genuine commitment to doing what she could. And you just don't sashay up to her and just fiddle around. You don't pick your nails or other parts of your body. We have to present a Jesus as worthy of honor and respect. He's exalted. In your demeanor is he exalted. In your conversation is he exalted. In your presentation is he exalted. God has exalted him. The angels bow down and worship him. Every knee will one day bow to him. No more taking Christ's name in vain after that. No more God jokes or Jesus jokes. We have to be serious about the exaltation of Christ if we're going to witness to the world in which we live. He has been exalted. 
Now, having been exalted is the tense of the Greek word also. It's not something he did, but it's something done to him or for him. He did not exalt himself. It's in the passive voice. He has been exalted. It's not in the middle voice. It's not something he did to himself. He was exalted. God the Father exalted Jesus. God gave Jesus this place and honor. He was exalted by God. Now, how, I don't know, how tough are God's standards? You want to apply for a job with God? He's got some standards. How tough are those standards to meet? And if you want to apply for the job to say, you know, I'm going to get Steve Cowden to heaven. That's a big task. I'm going to apply for that job. God's going to say, fine, it requires this, 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 and this. Do you measure up? And say, well, you know, I'm going to get all the people at New Covenant to heaven, holy and without blame. Do you want to apply for the job? Chris and I are kind of stuck with sort of doing part of it, but we can't apply for the full job. What are the standards? Is God serious about the job applicants? Some of the stuff you read in Job about Satan, other things you wonder if maybe he applied and got turned down. Let's say you want to get the job of saving all the people in Greenville and running the show in Greenville so everybody does get saved. Let's say you want the job to deal in Africa or the Middle East and you want to make sure saints get saved, stay saved, and don't get totally clobbered by all the opposition. See, the job description starts getting bigger, doesn't it? Let's say it's like you're going to save the whole world. And, oh, by the way, I want you to create the world first. And then I want you to keep the world spinning on its axis. And, by the way, you've got to make sure that all the sparrows go over to Steve's bird feeder properly and are nice to each other instead of beating each other up as they have been all day the last few days. And you've got to do this all at once. And when it's all said and done, 1 Corinthians 15, whoever this person is, I want him to take all the saints from all the ages, from Eve to the end, and have them presented before me, and I can do an inspection, and everybody passes muster. Is that a big job? That's the job that Jesus was given. He was exalted. Exalted. This is the Jesus you present to people. He's not some religious figure. All those pictures from the 1800s where Jesus is romanticized. They're just, uh, I just can't even look at them. I just have to cover my eyes. They're so awful. The flowing hair and everything else. I'm like, no. Jesus at the right hand of God with a rod of iron. He shatters kings. Lose the flow in here, please. Jesus is serious about his job. He's going to bring his job description and he's going to bring his task to a full, finish, complete. And every one of his saints are going to be there when it's all said and done. Some of you sometimes don't think you're going to make it. You're going to make it. Jesus is going to, going to have you showing up. Last chapter and written for you. You're going to make it. He will do everything he has to do. 
He will rule and reign and he will use his rod of iron. He will use his shattering capability to get anything and everything done. He's exalted. And so I want us to consider just the significance of this entire phrase to Christianity, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God. I want to consider it for our lives. And so the question is, is therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, is this a central issue or is this a peripheral issue? You see, years and century and a half of certain doctrines of eschatology have completely and utterly undermined this reality. Most of you know what I'm talking about, and some of you wonder, well, Steve, why is it such a big deal? Because it's a big deal. If this is just a peripheral issue, if the reign of Christ is just a peripheral issue, then fine, have all your opinions, have all your ideas. But if it's central to the gospel, then you don't get to have your opinions and ideas about it. You just don't. And if you're going to present the gospel, it better be correct when it comes to the reign of Christ from beginning to end. Because he's exalted. So as a central or peripheral, Acts chapter 5, 30-32, you have Peter again preaching and he says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, the resurrection, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. He's not letting anybody off the hook. God exalted him in his right hand as a leader, as a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those that obey him. Gosh, that's a pretty concise gospel message. Is that in y'all's back pocket, by the way? Because this is the gospel in a nutshell. Can you pull it out of your back pocket if you need to and go, yep, Jesus is at the right hand of God because he was raised from the dead. He had to get raised from the dead. He had to rise. He had to ascend into heaven because he's exalted. And he sat down at the right hand of God. And in this core outline, you can go to Psalm 110 specifically. You can go to Isaiah, particularly chapter 53, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel. All of those things from the Old Testament is woven together into this statement. It's really a summary of Old Testament message. It's a summary by way of fulfillment. God exalted him to his right hand. Do you talk about that? See, people who are sinners in the world, do they need yet one more philosophy? Do they need yet one more good idea for their life that they can maybe think through in their yoga class? Or do they need power to be set free from sin? Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God and that's the one we should present because that's the only one who can save sinners from sin, from themselves, from death. He's the one who will bring repentance into somebody's life. He's the one who has authored forgiveness and will give that forgiveness and speak that forgiveness to the bone. You know, I watch people, I've seen, and I have to have a lot of regrets in my own life. And people can say, well, I understand that you did that sin. Or people can say, hey, you know, look, you know, I forgive you. You did a really bad thing to me, but I forgive you. But in the end, the only forgiveness that ultimately matters, and David knew this, David had sinned awfully against Bathsheba and ruined her life. 
murdered her husband and all the other people around him. He had tarnished his reputation. For all time, he's put up there as how far someone can fall if they don't watch what they're doing. Don't pay attention. And David said, against you and you only have I sinned because David knew ultimately only God can bring the forgiveness that reaches to the marrow of the bone and sets you free. God's the only one who can do that. So you can get pulled over by a policeman, right? I know that none of you have, but unfortunately I have. I have to tell a story. We were going to this little church and... (laughs) I got a traffic ticket. Now, I got to be honest, this is how I got it. I was really blurry-eyed going to work in the morning, and I pulled up to the traffic light, and it was green. I stopped. Who knows what I was doing? It turned red, and I went. You know, I'm like, oh, that's, that's my morning. Well, there was a policeman right there. Right. He was so happy. He was so laughing when he got me. Anyway, I go into court, and guess who's in the court? Pastor of the church. <clears throat> And there's a whole lot of people there, so it was slow going. So I went up a little afterwards. I said, sounds like you need an advocate. (laughs) He didn't think it was funny, but I thought it was. Gwen thought it was, anyway. Now, the policeman could have been nice to me, and he could come, and he can say, hey, I'd like to let this guy off the hook. Can the policeman let me off the hook? What about if all the people voted and said, hey, we think Steve's a nice guy. We think you should get off the hook. Is that going to let me off the hook? Who's the only person in the room who can get me off? The judge. He's the only one whose forgiveness matters. You're glad for everybody else doesn't take it hard. Yeah, Steve is kind of a funny story. We realize how it happened. I mean... Work has been hard. Policemen go, you have one of those funny stops. But only the judge can forgive. And only God can forgive. But when he does, it goes to the bone. To the bone. And you know that you know that you know that you are forgiven. Are you forgiven here today? Are all your sins forgiven? Are you up to date with God? Have you confessed all the things you know? Said, Lord, I've been an idiot. Lord, I've done this. Lord, this was awful. Lord, this was just really stupid. This was sin. And I repent. The judge of the universe, the only one who can forgive anybody at any time, in any place or period in history, he has forgiven you in his son. To give repentance and forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That's what's in this little message here. Acts 7, 55 through 56. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven, intently into heaven, and saw the glory of God. I mean, how do you do that? saw the glory of God. What an amazing picture. I mean, the universe is massive. God can create it in one day, six days. Not a problem for him. That's the, that's the difficulty when people say, well, you know, there's so many light years and all this. I'm like, 
you know, even you scientists talk about a big bang. Will you please get over it? There's a big bang. It's called Genesis. And you all want to put it at 13.4 billion years. Why don't you just put it in six days and then everybody's happy and we can move on. There's a great God who's done this. And he's done it his way. And God explains it, certainly, in, you know, fifth, uh, second century B.C. language or second millennium B.C. language. It's not a science book. But God says, here's how I did it. And here's how many days it took. And when God was done, he wasn't tired. He just said he was finished. When you're done, you sit and you mow the grass. You may or may not be tired. You sit down and get your sweet tea and you look at the grass you just mowed. And say, oh man, this is great. So how do you see God who is outside of that universe? Who is according to some billions of light years away? According to modern science, the universe is 92 billion miles across. And if we're in the middle, it's 41 billion either way to either side. And the challenge is this, the universe is expanding, right? And the farther you go out, the faster it's expanding to a point in which it's expanding faster than light's traveling this way. So you can have stars out here whose light is coming to us, and yet that light is going faster than the speed of light, so you'll never see those stars. They call that the cosmic horizon. The universe is bigger than they can measure simply because we're finite and God, God made sure we would never see the end of it. I'm so glad it's always funny to watch them. How do you see God who is beyond that? Our brother did. He looked intently into heaven. Maybe he was puzzled. Maybe who knows what he was thinking when he looks up and he just... He just pierces right through all that, past all those galaxies, and there is God. If you don't think God can't do that, then your God's really small. And you're way too big. He saw the glory of God. He saw the majesty of God. It was there shining. And it wasn't just the visibleness that was shining just the glory of God shining in his heart penetrating the whole of his humanity and he saw Jesus standing there at God's right hand he saw it talk about a witness maybe he was one who saw the resurrection maybe he was one who was there when Jesus ascended now he sees where he went kind of amazing he's not sitting he's standing and I know as many have observed easy to observe he stood up for the first martyr that's recorded in the New Testament. Jesus stood up. See, when you go in to meet the Queen of England, when, if you watch The Crown, she sits in a room and you get allowed in because she rings her little bell. And then when she's done talking to you, you know because she rings her little bell, and that's it. Doesn't matter whether you're in the middle of a conversation. You're in with a bell and you're out. <clears throat> um, And when you go, come in, she doesn't stand for you. And when you leave, she doesn't stand for you because to do that would say that she wasn't the sovereign. There's a reason for these things. But here Jesus, the right-hand man of God, got up, stood up. And so the takeaways are he looked into heaven 
And he saw the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of God. Those are our takeaways. That's what Peter said. He being by the right hand of God exalted. Jesus is in heaven. And he exclaims, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man. So if you want to understand what son of man means, it doesn't mean that Jesus was a human. It's terminology out of the Old Testament to demonstrate that Jesus is the divine person who's at the right hand of God. It is specific terminology for that. The son of man standing at the right hand of God. I mean, it's said twice. A little bit different words, but it's said twice. Again, he's in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. He's physically there. So I used to say, I used to say 160, I'll downgrade to 150. 150 pounds of DNA is at the right hand of God. And that's everything to Christianity. Everything. Absolutely everything. And Jesus acquired that DNA by an incarnation. And he took that DNA in a birth, a real birth like everybody else, crying and having to get cleaned up and everything else and nursing at his mother's breast. He took that DNA there. He grew up as a child with that DNA. He did work with that DNA. He probably smashed his finger with a hammer with that DNA. With that DNA, he was filled with the Holy Spirit at the River Jordan, baptized at the River Jordan. With that DNA, he performed miracles. With that DNA, and in that DNA, he was worshipped as God. Took that DNA to a cross. Took that DNA into a grave. Stepped out of the grave with that DNA. Ascended into heaven with that DNA and sat down at the right hand of God with that DNA. Because he's the second Adam. He had to have DNA. It's everything. Ephesians 1, 18 through 21, Paul is praying. He's got this big long prayer that doesn't end until chapter 3. So Paul starts at 1, 3 and he prays for three chapters. So I wouldn't, you know, if, if in your prayers, you know, truth isn't coming to mind, then... Maybe you need to get more truth in your life. God loves his word prayed back to him as long as it's not just an intellectual recital, but it's gone through the reality of heart and mind and soul and comes back to him with joy and worship and trust and faith and hope. I pray. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is how Christians live and move and function. God opens your heart. And you get spiritual eyesight. It's called the new birth. Without it, all you see is empty religion. You may be like some of the scholars that that I read. They're not saved. I feel for them. But man, they can really write some good commentaries up to a point. Then you're going, eh, that's not so. You can tell the eyes of their heart aren't enlightened. You can tell the difference between someone who's an intellectual Christian, a cultural Christian, 
than someone who's crying, Abba, Father, from the heart. The eyes of your heart get opened and enlightened so that you can know what is the hope of his calling. All these words have theological dimensions to them, if you will. I don't like to use those words because they're just realities. God wants us to know, to understand from the heart out, from an enlightened heart, not an enlightened head. The head has to be there, and in this essence, we're, the whole of our inward being is being enlightened. And we have understanding so that we would know. We've got to use our head. The love of God's poured into our heart, and the reality and glory of God is in our head so that we can articulate it and share it with others. You might know what is the hope of his calling. God has called you. He's already talked about that in the first few verses of this chapter. That you may know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, does Paul mean what God gets from you and for you and with you, or does it mean what you get with God? Well, it probably means both. We're heirs of God, we're joint heirs with Christ, and therefore, the riches of God we share. We are his and he is ours. I will be your God and you will be my people. Everybody gets something out of the deal. The glory of his inheritance and saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe? The Greek is really neat here because Paul is just like using every, it's like he took, got a Greek thesaurus and said, I'm going to use every synonym I can possibly get and I'm going to find the most intense synonyms, and that's what I'm going to throw into this passage. He took about 50 synonyms, threw it in a bag, shook it up, and poured it out, and was like, here it is. What is the surpassing greatness of the power of God to those who believe? Surpassing greatness. Power. This is the gospel. It's not a philosophy. It's not yet one more ideology. This is God intervening in a human life in thousands and millions of human lives over the ages. This is all in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Not just the working, but the working of his might. And it's not just the working of his might, it's the strength of his might. Again, throw all those adjectives in, shake them up, pour them out. There they are. Which he brought about in Christ. All of this is in Christ. And these come to us and we participate in these things when he raised him from the dead as the last Adam, the second man, the head of the new humanity, that second humanity that is permanent and eternal. He raised him from the dead and he set him at his right hand in the heavens. Again, there's that location of Christ. It's not some metaphorical spot. It is a real place where 150 pounds of DNA is at the right hand of God in heaven. And he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named. There's no name you can drop that's going to eclipse Jesus. You see, if you were to say, well, Steve Cowden's a good surfer. Well, it would have to be in the past tense, but he's a good surfer. But then you could drop the name Kai Lenny. I mean, I'm done. I'm just like, Kai Lenny, Steve. Okay? See, guys, you young people, I'm cool. I'm way cool. Do you know who Kai Lenny is? If you don't know who Kai Lenny is, you should look him up or you are not cool. 
That's just the definition of coolness. Kai Lenny is an awesome big wave surfer. You need to watch him. He rides these big 20 and 30 foot waves like it was a five foot wave. He's just, I've never seen anything like it. Anyway, he's my surfing hero. I don't know about anything else, but <laughs> at least in surfing. So you can drop a whole bunch of names that will eclipse Steve Cowden in the surfing world. Are there any names you can drop that will eclipse Jesus Christ in anything? Any names? Buddha? Muhammad? Some great king? Some rich person? Whose name are you going to drop that's going to bump Jesus down the list? Far above all authority and power and dominion and every name that's named. Say, well, I got a name. No, every name that's named. What about? No, every name that's named. Whether it's false religions with all of their little views of life, with all their little spiritual nomads going around and you can follow doesn't matter whatever name, wherever you pull it from, you can't not eclipse Jesus. Never have been able to do it in this whole entire age from first Adam to the second coming of Christ, this age, or the one to come. Now, if you've got questions about eschatology, here's where you go. Paul knows two ages, this age and the one to come. There's not three ages, there's not four ages. There's not one age, there's two. This one and the one to come. In this one, we have to live and struggle with remaining sin. We have enemies of the gospel. We have to believe. We have a, an expiration date on our life. All of us have it. It's attached to us when we're born. We just don't know when it is. The closer you get to it, the more you think about it. That age to come is the age of everlasting glory. It's only two ages. If you, can't, if you have to have a third age for your eschatology, you're probably missing the biblical presentation of eschatology. Not only in this age, but also is to come. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus is the right hand of God. Is there anything bigger than this passage we've just read and looked at? Can you find anything bigger? There's just one passage here in Ephesians and we'll be done. Paul in chapter 2 starts out about, but you were dead in your trespasses. The God of this world controlled us. We were a mess. We were without hope, without God in the world. We were a mess. If we were trying to seek after God, it was our own opinion of it. You want to know how much yin and yang I tried to get straight for a year and a half before I got saved? So you all think that you're the ones who've discovered yin and yang? No. <clears throat> I was out there with the best of them. I'd go on my rice diets and my fasts. I'd been through all that stuff. Somehow to try to fix what was broken on the inside or fix a spiritual problem with health food. Doesn't work, I can promise you. I tried. I got healthy, but I was still dead in trespasses and sins. 
But in the face of this darkness in which every one of us was born into, everyone in this room, everyone who hears my voice, was born in sin. You were born in the first Adam. You inherited Adam's guilt and you inherited Adam's nature. Romans 5. And you can't say, well, if I had been back with Adam, I would. Yes, you would have done it. You wonder how I know? Because the first time you got an opportunity to sin, what did you do? Well, I wouldn't sin like Adam. I would just sin like, well, like Steve. We all ratify Adam's decision in our life history early on. It doesn't make us guilty. We already had Adam's guilt. It just confirms that the guilt is real and the guilt is deserving. But God, being rich in mercy, in the face of our sin, in the face of our rebellion, in the face of our darkness, in the face of our aligning ourselves with a world that is against God and aligning ourselves with Satan who is absolutely against God, in the face of all that, God, being rich in mercy. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, because of his great love wherewith he loved us. See, our salvation didn't start with my decision. It started all the way back in Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. The great love wherewith God loved us before the foundation of the world. That's where our salvation started. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, trespasses, sin, we were spiritually dead. So all the people that say, well, I'm kind of a spiritual person, are kind of like, no, you're not. You're dead in trespasses and sins. I hate to tell you this, but you need to hear it. You're not sick in trespasses and sins. That would be Arminianism. You're dead. Go out into a graveyard and try to talk to people, get them out of the grave. Not going to work. Why? They're dead. There's nothing you have to offer that they can relate to. They're dead. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we are in that state of rebellion against God, enemies of God. That's why the word reconciliation is part of the gospel message. You can be reconciled to God because before you get saved, you are an enemy of God. Now, you can think you're a nice person and you wouldn't be an enemy of God until some demand of God comes and all of a sudden the hostility sticks its head up. There was some movie where everybody was talking about, well, you've got to be truthful. You were dishonest with me, blah, 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 as they hop into bed, you know. <laughs> Who knows how many times. If you talk about, you know, being honest and truthful, well, yeah, they're, they're all for that. But if you talk about, you know, immorality, bad idea, all of a sudden you'll find the hostility, won't you? We were dead in our transgressions. We were enemies of God. But God made us alive, not in ourselves. God didn't make us alive on our own. He made us alive together with Christ. That's how you got saved. God joined you to Jesus Christ. God did this. That's why he's your father. God did this because of his great love wherewith he, he loved you. God had this purpose going on and he was planning this all out before he ever made this universe, before the Big Bang of Genesis chapter 1 ever happened. 
God loved you. So some of you say, man, I'm really in a, in, a, in a dull state. I'm empty. I haven't really in my spirit heard from God in a long time. Maybe I'm just cast off. No, you're not. You're just going through some hard times for some reason. You're supposed to live by faith. You're supposed to trust this passage. You're supposed to count on the great love wherewith God loved you. And I love this passage. I have a good friend, Chris Sowers, and some years ago he, he was just talking about this passage with me, and he said, well, look at this, Steve. He said, we are dead in trespasses, and God made us alive. We were dead, and God made us alive. This is grace. And it's just one of those things that's stuck with me ever since. By grace you've been saved. You were spiritually dead, and God made you spiritually alive in Christ. Grace can't buy it. You can't coerce God into it. Important people aren't going to get anywhere with God. It's not until you see yourself as the least important person in the history of the universe that you're ever really going to get saved. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because that's how you've got to come to God. You've got to find out who you really are and then let God give you an identity. Let him take away that identity that you invented yourself, your narcissistic self-identity, and let him replace it with an identity that lasts forever. Union with his son. Born of God. A new name, a white stone with a new name written that only you and God will know. It's a new identity, a new name. You gotta ch- but the first thing you've got to do is you've got to let go of this one. You are dead and God made you alive. By grace you're saved and he raised us up with him. Look at the steps. Jesus did what? He died. He rose. Okay, well, you were dead and now you're raised with Christ. And, well, is that it? Okay, I got raised with Jesus. Do you all believe you're raised with Jesus? Hopefully we're going to have some baptisms here. We've been planning on some. We're waiting for Steve to get to the place in Acts to do it. Maybe we we should stop that, but uh, hope against hope. But... That's what that baptism is a picture of. That's why to distort it is just so grievous to me. I don't understand why we've just come to terms and said, well, agree. I don't agree to disagree with anybody on it. The Bible says you're raised with Christ. That water baptism better reflect that. And that alone. You were raised with him. Do you believe it this morning? You see, if you're having a hard time believing it for yourself this morning, Get rid of any false humility, get rid of all that stuff, and just get real with God. Say, God, I don't feel like I have that new identity that's talked about here, and I want it. And you're the only one who can give it to me. I want that identity. Raised us up with him, and put us where? Can any of you expound this, by the way? What it means that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places? I can't. I can try. I'll probably make a few stabs at it. But whatever it is, is it glorious? Is it yours? Is it your identity? See, Christ stepped out of the grave into resurrection, stepped into ascension, stepped into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God. And when you get saved, He takes you there with him and all the realities that flow from it.
That's who you are in Christ. You can look in the mirror and say, in my own little narcissistic self-identity, I'm a dirtball. Yes, you are. But in your identity in Christ, you're in Christ Jesus. And that's the gospel. So, the question was, is this Christ being in heavenly places, seated at God's right hand, is it central to Christianity? Or is it a peripheral, secondary thing that we can agree to disagree on? You all have to have that answer for yourself, so I'll leave it there. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and we just thank you that we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Lord, I can't even begin to start to try to outline what that means. I know it's full of glory. I know we, there's all kind of things that flow from it that we can identify, but in the end, it is so glorious and so real and so rich and so powerful. Only your Holy Spirit can give us a sense of it. We can try to grasp it and articulate it, and that's a good thing. We can meditate on it, which we're supposed to do. And as law does he meditate day and night, and Lord, we need to be doing that. But Lord, in the end, these are the things that Paul will just in a few, few verses later say, the love of Christ that passes understanding. It's real, it can be felt, it can be described, but in the end it passes understanding. And this, this reality that we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, that just passes understanding. Our mind will only take us so far as one brother said, faith will swim when intellect can only wade. So Lord, here we are, we're before your throne, we're your children, we're bought with the blood of your Son and we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Make this reality true for us. It's gonna cost us. The sufferings of Christ is one of the price tags on it. There is a price tag for following you. Can't buy forgiveness, only you can give it. Can't buy being seated with Jesus. Can't buy it, only you can give it. That's grace. But following Jesus, there's price tags. And Lord, let us be willing to pay that price Again, make us see Jesus so this, the, the things of this world will go strangely dim as we sing every now and then. And we will just be focused on Jesus. Lord, give us a sense of what we can do in the kingdom. We just don't want to sit around and meditate. Lord, we want to be around and be witnesses. And so, Lord, just we want to be busy about your kingdom. And we pray that you would enable us to do that and bless every work of, of faith with power because you're at the right hand of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.